0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Station 2022 edition. It's Wednesday, January 5th. 2022 on today's show the post-apocalyptic novel Station 11 has been given a lavish adaptation by HBO it flashes back from a future depopulated by plague to our period now roughly uh we will discuss with June Thomas and then the truly incomparable Joan Didion, essayist and novelist screenwriter, has died. How did so intimate a voice produce so incomprehensibly vast a legacy? We will try to do both of those justice. And finally, I think it's really one of the funner landmarks on the Cult gab calendar. I love marking it off. The movie club. We discuss a year in movies with Dana Stevens. Joining me today is Julia Turner, deputy managing editor at the LA Times. Happy New Year, Julia. Hello, hello. Happy New Year. Uh, Yeah, great to hear you. And of course, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana.
2: Hey, hey. Happy New Year to you both. May it be a better one.
1: Yeah. 2022 is the year that a great book about Buster Keaton was published, if I cast my mind back to before times. It was the one (laughs) book that made it through the sieve of global pandemic. And we all cling to it like a totemic... Okay, anyway...
2: Future civilization will base their political system on my book about Buster Keaton.
1: (laughs) You could do worse. Can you give us the title of it?
2: Absolutely. It is called Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. And as everyone should be able to recite in chorus now, Steve, after your aggressive marketing efforts, it comes out on January 25th.
1: All right. Well, the HBO limited series Station Eleven is based on the 2014 novel by Emily St. John Mandel novel of the same name, I should say. It takes off from a depressingly relevant premise that a global pandemic flu has wiped out 99% of the human population. The world consequently goes dark. Electricity and running water are bygone relics of the before times. In its place are small subsistence level settlements between which roams a troop of players, actors traveling the perimeter of Lake Michigan performing the works of Shakespeare. The lead actress and knife fighter extraordinaire is Kirsten, who who flashes back to the night the pandemic leveled humanity. I think it's about 20 years in the past and uh, the immediate aftermath of the leveling. She remembers it in vivid detail. Her would-be mentor as a child actress was a movie star named Arthur Leander. She was in a production of King Lear with them the night the pandemic struck. She also remembers Jeevan, the stranger who randomly saves her life and shepherds her into the neo-medieval era. The show beautifully fills out both the depleted pre-modern world that is the present tense, but also this old world, our world, the lost world of stupid unconscious abundance. And a failure to understand and make real human connection. The show stars Mackenzie Davis as present day Kirsten, as well as Laurie Petty, Himesh Patel, David Cross is in it. It's a very good cast. Uh, I should also mention Matilda Lawler plays young Kirsten and is terrific. Let's uh, let's listen to a clip.
3: Do you know about this flu?
1: What that thing in Asia?
3: Well, mostly Europe. H- hold on. Do you think I care at all, Sam? Northwestern ER just sent their overflow to us. Hi. Hi. Okay, I wasn't supposed to be at work today, but I got called back into the ER an hour ago. 16-year-old flew in from Moscow last night, presented with flu symptoms. We've never seen a flu like this before. It's fucking chaos.
1: I don't know, it sounds kind of bad.
3: It's too late to run. You need to get to Frank. Don't believe a word the news says. The city's gonna be fucked. People are walking around already exposed and they don't even know it. Avoid contact with anyone, just
1: you, just Frank. Okay, joining us to discuss Station Eleven is the, you know, I don't know, the very friendliest friend of the program. I mean, the (laughs) IRFOP, you're the IRFOP, June Thomas.
4: Hey, Steve, thank you for having me. Yeah,
1: it's wonderful to have you back. I should say very quickly that uh, Julia, as most listeners know, recuses herself from HBO shows. So that's why we have June, lucky us. Um, June, this is uh, depressingly apt, as I said in my introduction, it just it's home. I mean, you have this novel that preceded our own pandemic by by six or so years, uh, being made into an ultra-relevant show. It's very ruminative. It's very thoughtful about how we lived pre-pandemically. What do you uh, What do you make of this?
4: I am torn. I found it very compelling. I really enjoyed being in the minute of it. Um, It is a feeling show rather than an analysis show for me, even though it is very, you know, it's a thoughtful show. There is a piece of art. It's a comic book and it becomes a kind of totemic work of art throughout the season. It's both a pastime, it's a shibboleth, it almost becomes a book of faith. And yet there's not a lot to it. Uh, And in a sense that kind of shows you know there is a thought and a kind of philosophy side to this where we can say well you don't have to be a great work of art to be important you don't have to be a great work of art to make a difference in people's life but somehow that sort of central idea to the show just felt very apt like what is it really about is it about you know resilience is it about art what is it about I don't know but I enjoyed watching it is mm. that just awfully unsatisfactory as a response?
1: No, but you are on probation now. As a <laughs> guess for Let's turn to uh, Dana for a second. Dana, I think you've watched the entire show.
2: I've watched all that is available to be watched right now. I did not get an advanced screener, so I've watched seven of the ten episodes, which is all that's aired so far.
1: So clearly you're... Captivated by it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree with June that it's a feeling rather than a thinking show. I was reading Laura Miller's review of the show on Slate. She's also read the book and was talking about how they differ and was just pointing out some of the big logic holes in the in the kind of universe that it builds. And but none of that really matters when you're watching it. I found it very addictive episode to episode. I can't wait to see what happens next. But something to point out is that this is a very uh mosaic-like show. It it covers a lot of different time frames, as you said, and it's not just skipping back and forth between two different people's time frames. It's just all over the place, right? We've got flashbacks for various characters. We don't know how they relate yet. I'm now, you know, seven-tenths of the way through. It's only a 10-part show, and I still don't quite know how some of these pieces are going to fit together or, you know, why we're revisiting some of these past scenes that we're revisiting. But because of that, that also something develops where you, you care about certain time frames and certain characters more than others. And for example, the uh, the time frame that you mentioned with the child, the little girl played by Matilda Lawler, who grows up to be the Mackenzie Davis character, who I guess you'd call the protagonist of the show, I think is fantastic. And in part, it's just because that kid is great. The character that she's playing is an actual character, like a child with characteristics, which is something that I'm always on about on, on this podcast, right? Like, I just can't stand when there's a child and all that they represent in a show is a child, right? Oh, it's a vulnerable child. Let's feel sorry for them. No, this is a very specific and strange little girl and uh, and I love those parts of the story and the friendship that she forms with this man played by Himesh Patel who sort of almost by accident adopts her as the as the flu sweeps through Chicago as a result for me the show sometimes loses energy when it's in the present day. Mackenzie Davis is also great as the grown-up version of that character. I don't know if you guys feel this way too but the whole plot about the traveling Shakespeare troupe that's in the current day never really came together for me. I know that we're supposed to have this feeling of, you know, solidarity that they're keeping Shakespeare alive after the pandemic. I mean, if you had told me, you know, there's a show about a traveling Shakespeare troupe in a post-apocalyptic dystopia, like that sounds amazing, but There's so many characters in that troupe, I don't know who they all are. There's not a lot of attention to Shakespeare itself. There's a couple of scenes where we see them performing Hamlet and other shows, but there's not really a sense of Shakespeare's language or or spirit infusing that troupe exactly. And so my partner and I who've been watching this show together have come to call those those present day traveling troupe scenes the Burning Man part of the show. (laughs) Because everybody's sort of outfitted in crazy post apocalyptic costumes and, you know, living this kind of dystopic, utopic dream together, and it never quite Makes sense to me. Maybe on the page in Emily St. John Mandel's book, all of that comes together. But I feel like it's very programmatic on screen.
1: Right, Dana. I think you and I really substantially agree on this one. So this gigantic sieve in the form of a pandemic flu is lowered upon all of humanity, through which comes, you know, I mean, only one percent survive, but fifty percent of them are are Bard theater majors. I mean, I did. That was the one thing I didn't like about it. It's like this kind of artsy hippie vibe that's a little self-adoring in a way that i found slightly annoying otherwise i want to make plain i've watched five hours of this i intend to watch all of it and i more or less love it it it, it's a lot of things I hate done beautifully well. The semi, um, not omniscient child, but the wise child, right? The preco- precociously wise child, wonderfully written, wonderfully performed in this. Typically, it's a it's a horrible genre crutch. It's not here. I love the relationship between this slightly debauched but but wonderfully seductive and impish movie star and this this woman that he meets, who's in one sense leading a completely. I mean, she's living an extraordinary life that the show is quite quite clear about that. She's a a woman of remarkable acumen who talks her way into a job in logistics in the shipping industry her relationship to her work is represented so fully and so accurately it it does not fall back on really tired stereotypes about corporate life she's in asia on a very high end sales mission when the flu kicks in she has to get out and she's saddled with this sidekick who's sort of your classic doofus docker's wearing golf club toting corporate moron right um you know failing up white guy and and the show humanizes him he's beautifully drawn as a caricature. He's very funny and very believable. But it humanizes him in this wonderful way. It has a tendency to make relationships, all relationships, very full. I agree with you. There's something special about the Jeevan relationship, in part because he saves the central character's life. He allows her to pass through the sieve, in part because the performance by Patel is just extraordinary. Shows like this rely very often too much on mood, June, and silence in order to make them seem pregnant with meaning when they're pregnant with gas, right? And this one seems to me actually pregnant with with meaning. I'm not quite sure exactly what it is, but I don't mind that because I feel as though I'm actually eavesdropping on real people, which is extremely... Extremely hard to do. I mean, Arthur Leander, this movie star, he is not capital M, capital S movie star. He is so humanly portrayed. I'm a fan of the show. I almost, at this point, don't care where it goes. I just want to hang out with it for three more hours.
4: I just want to kind of pick up on some things that you said, Steve, because I agree, it is a hang show. I'm six hours in. I want to know, I I want to piece the jigsaw together. So in that sense, there is that investment. But, you know, you use things like eavesdropping or the truth is there are very few words. There are these almost biblical or, you know, holy book type sentences that get repeated, but there's very little dialogue. So it is it's an odd show in that regard that that first show that is it's a clever show. It's a philosophical show. And yet the words are so sparse.
1: And yet, Dana, I agree with you completely, and yet the show's a hit, right? It's pregnant, ruminative, very often brooding and silent, but it is a big hit for HBO. People are responding to something.
2: I mean, a huge part of it must be this is very elephant in the room to come so late in the conversation, but the pandemic, right? I mean, I think it's a question whether obviously the source material preceded the pandemic, right? But not the concept of pandemics and the idea that one might be coming. You know, we keep on talking on this show about the attempt to capture what's happening right now in art and that maybe it's too early and it hasn't really happened yet. I'm flashing back to Lockdown, that very early pandemic movie with Chiwetel Ejiofor and Anne Hathaway, which I think I liked better than you and Julia. Yeah but it was kind of a failure. <laughs> it was sort of an interesting failure, you know, an attempt to, to tell a story from within this moment that's happening. Obviously, this is a much more ambitious and camera pulled much further out kind of version of the same thing. And I wonder whether you think it speaks to our moment in particular. It certainly is not straining to be contemporary and timely, which I appreciate. It's not trying to throw in references to, you know, the Trump administration or anything to do with the actual conditions of the pandemic that we're in. But but do you, do you all feel that it, it arrives in a timely way? And maybe that's why people are
0: responding to it?
4: I don't know. Obviously, as you said, it's about a pandemic. We can't ignore that. On the other hand, the way this pandemic has played out, yes, 20 years later, but even a few months later, is so different that it still, to me, feels... It, it's like watching a zombie movie. Sure, you, maybe you can you know, kind of see it as an allegory, but it's not our world. Mm-hmm. Either I find it too separate from our own conditions or, I mean, I'm sufficiently able to deny the connection. But it it doesn't feel, you know, it isn't kind of playing strings of, oh, how this is referring to the current moment to me at all.
2: I appreciate that it's not. And that's that's to me, is, it makes it more relevant, right? I mean, it's asking questions that you would ask about any kind of extinction level event, which is what's going to matter afterward. Yes.
1: And, like, be mindful of what abundance-glutted fools we are and uh, how we tune each other out when we're like that. You know, it's sort of people rediscovering in retrospect these relationships that made them who they were more than electricity and running water did. Anyway, I it's, I think it's really worth checking out. I think we all agree with that. It's Station Eleven. It's on HBO Max. June, you are the IRFOP. It's always great to hear your voice. <laughs> Happy New Year. And thank you so much for coming back on the show.
4: Thank you, Steve.
1: The writer Joan Didion died two weeks ago at the age of 87. I mean, one is sort of overwhelmed by superlatives and deep feelings when one discusses a writer as formative to probably each one of us in our own way as Joan Didion. I hear some of mine, I think that Orwell... James Baldwin and Didion may be in a class by themselves among essayists in English in the 20th century. She was a nonfiction deity. She was a great novelist, a terrific novelist, and an accomplished screenwriter as well. I think the essay was her primary form uh, collected in the nonfiction classics, slouching towards Bethlehem and the White Album, in some ways, respectively, a definitive take on the 1960s uh, and a definitive take on the 1970s. We spent years... I believe, wasting our breath on whether or not Philip Roth would win the Nobel Prize every single year. I wondered why we weren't talking about and possibly winning it. She certainly deserved it. One more personal reminiscence. I taught a very, very good class on um, creative nonfiction at the University of Pennsylvania, and of course included Didion and then Tom Wolfe, multiple others. And at the end of the class, I was just curious. as if you could write like one, if you could have the talent of any one of the people that we read this semester, who would it be? Virtually everyone said Didion, and I had to agree. I mean, she's just... Inside of us, as a sensibility and as a as a talent, and to the extent that you self-formulate as a writer in in the English language at this point in time, it's very hard not to have had Didion be part of what you're doing. It, I think that her own personality entered so deeply into her own sentences, as well as the character of the country as a whole. She was capable of assessing both quite coolly, but they also like inhabited her in the most personal way. She was a kind of a by her own telling, a kind of California princess who came a little bit too late for the '60s. She understood them, therefore, better than either her elders or her youngers. And she was able subsequently to have a kind of 20-year-plus nervous breakdown, just as the country was having it, while also observing both so dispassionately. I will end this not brief introduction by saying that there were many things I loved about Joan Didion, but I have to point to the Central Park Jogger essay. I mean, If you just want to pick one thing that you may not have read, or if you've read it, to reread it, I would point to that only because it's so repulsively relevant to us now. And it's also, to my mind, the single most astonishing real-time intervention of a critical intelligence into the culture at the very moment that the culture needed to hear it. I also would say her essays on Newt Gingrich and Reagan are better than anything else I've ever read on either one. And Of course, White Album and Slouching are are indispensable. I'm now going to turn it over to you guys. Dana, I mean, now tell me that you're not influenced or don't care about Joan Didion at all. I mean, please feel free to throw my introduction back in my face. I don't mean to speak for you at all. But I mean, an astonishing influence to evade as well as grapple with. What did you think when we heard Didion was gone?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess no, nobody working in journalism now could say that they're completely free from her influence, but I probably don't know all the ways in which I'm influenced by her because unlike you, I'm not super, super widely read in her. And when I think about the Didion that I've read, it's mainly the late autobiographical Didion, The Year of Magical Thinking, the book about her husband's death, Blue Knights, the book about her daughter's death, Where I Was From, which is a great sort of memoir about her, her childhood and early life. Um, obviously, you know, her big essays and essay collections I'm familiar with, but for example, her fiction, have never read a word of it, um, and, you know, really kind of don't really know my way around the vast Joan Didion oeuvre in the way that you do. But I think something that's really struck me in reading, you know, this outpouring of feeling about her after her death, not all positive feeling either, right? I mean, she's someone who who's very divisive, and I think who a lot of journalists have defined themselves in opposition to as much as, you know, in, in imitation of. But there's something about her personality, the, the bigness of 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 her inside of her writing, that is is very interesting and paradoxical because it seems like the opposite of what she wanted to do. Right? She feels like somebody who wants to have a very ironic, often cold, sort of detached tone. Mm-hmm. There's a quote from Didion that's in Parul Segal's great tribute to her in the in the Times, the New York Times, where she says. I'm not much interested in spontaneity. I'm not an inspirational writer. What concerns me is total control. And uh, it seems like her writing is often about trying to walk that edge between having control and not having control, right? She writes about chaotic situations in a very tightly controlled way. Mm -hmm. She's... She's just she's a writer who has so much tension on the page, yes. right? And and I feel like that that tension also expresses itself in the way that people read her. And there was a lot of talk after her death last week, a lot of writing about what a sort of style influence she is on young women, both in writing style and in personal style because she's someone who just had a huge personality that she brought to her work even though she seemed to be trying to restrain it all the time. So, that's a very equivocal answer, but that's what I sense in her writing in a way is that, you know, she's a star, literary superstar whose herness is all over her writing. And at the same time, she always seemed as if she was trying to erase herself and remove herself from that writing and make it something objective and outside.
1: Julia, you're a woman in journalism. Didion, what did she mean to you?
0: I've been rereading various essays of hers since she died. And, you know, I will say I spoke earlier on the show about my new masterpieces-only reading policy, um, which I don't always follow. But it was nice to settle into her extremely controlled and delectable prose and be like, oh, well, one way I could execute this is just <laughs> reading Joan Didion for the next year. There's plenty of it. There's plenty of it I haven't read, and it's all interesting. And, you know, one thing that's that's particularly interesting to me is her takes on California as a subject. And as someone who's from California, spent her youth in New York, as famously captured in her essay about leaving New York as a 28-year-old woman, um, although, of course, Then after spending a long time in California, she went back to New York. So her thoughts on these two places that have been my two main places of adulthood have been really interesting to grapple with. And one thing that has struck me in that reading is the way she writes about place. And there's a, I think, part of what is so beguiling and difficult about her as a role model for the modern journalist is that she's almost a travel writer in the present And she's doing a kind of travel writing that is out of fashion at the moment. Like she makes grand pronouncements about the mood of a time. She makes big assumptions about what it means to be, you know, from California or to have grown up in the aerospace boom or, you know, to be a young woman going to literary parties in New York. Like she has this kind of incantatory, uh, like ability to attribute Quite specific experiences to like collectives that she's conjuring and she pulls it off. <laughs> yes, I mean? exactly. Like that's the thing. She, <laughs> everything she's doing like shouldn't work is an extremely high risk, like triple gainer of a of a literary maneuver. And yet it works. And so I think lots of people sort of fall under her spell. But if you try to imitate her, you just
1: look like a <laughs> You're dead. <laughs> no oh no doubt. <laughs>
0: And that's part of of what's so attractive about reading her is they're like, how the fuck did she do this?
1: Right. And you're like the spirit medium, you know, in a seance that involves every frayed nerve of the country at once somehow. And yet you're this also highly individuated, idiosyncratic person. Um, Would you guys permit me just to read a little bit of Didion before we go further? Sure. So everyone knows that famous opening sentence. I mean, it's up there with Call Me Ishmael to the White Album. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Let me just remind people of what she says next, because that's become one of those things we can no longer see nor hear for its profundity. You know, it's just a cliche now. Um, The princess is caged in the consulate. The man with the candy will lead the children into the sea. The naked woman on the ledge out outside the window on the 16th floor is a victim of XCD, or the naked woman is an exhibitionist, and it would be interesting to know which. We tell ourselves that it makes some difference whether the naked woman is about to commit a mortal sin, or is about to register a political protest, or is about to be the Aristophanic view snatched back to the human condition by the fireman in priest's clothing just visible in the window beneath her, the one smiling at the to- telephoto lens. We look for the sermon and the suicide for the social or moral lesson in the murder of five we interpret what we see select the most workable of the multiple choices we live entirely especially if we are writers by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria which is our actual experience or at least we do for a while I am talking here about a time when I began to doubt the premises of all the stories I had ever told myself. So what we forget about that refrigerator magnet sentence is that she repudiates it. And the book that follows the white album is about how the country has lost its ability to tell itself a cogent story about itself. And so has she, and she's unable to, as I interpret it, unable to find the story as the culture is. And it's in that horrible unison between her own, Actual, I think, physical and nervous mental breakdown, and the country's collective one that she produces this total masterpiece. And it's a rejection of narrative patness that actually loads that sentence with its meaning. And I think maybe we've forgotten that a little bit.
0: I get what some of the detractors say, which is if you read a lot in a row, there can be kind of a similar shtick of like the American dream is dying, is dying, slash never existed in the first place. And through me you can see through the bullshit like there's sort of a there's a sense that when you look at the world through her eyes you are joining her club of knowing cynics it's a powerful drug though i mean it doesn't feel like an inaccurate way to look at america in the 20th and early 21st centuries and in some ways it seems like the most accurate way like maybe part of what makes her feel so important is that her view her fundamental view was correct and feels right but i was struck by how it came back around
2: Yeah, this is kind of what I was trying to get at earlier with talking about her as an icon of style in writing and style in in personal presentation, is that there's a kind of cult of Didion and, uh, you know, that that can express itself in, in imitation and also in, yeah, kind of fetishization of the class signifiers in her work, which I've also seen a lot of pushback about in the, the past couple of weeks of writing about her. That she is somebody who, in a way, lived a life of privilege and that, you know, the signifiers of that privilege kind of pop up in her writing in a way that, that seemed to be sometimes out of her, the, the tight control that she liked to hold over everything. I mean, I can easily see, although I don't feel it myself, especially because I know her through, as I said, that late person Personal writing in which I think she's very different than she had been throughout her career as an essayist, much more self-exposing and much more candid and more vulnerable. Uh, I, I maybe don't identify with this criticism, but I can see the criticism of Joan Didion that has to do with her, you know, holding herself apart in a way from the reader, of having a certain maybe snideness or condescension toward her own reader because, you know, her intellect is so huge and her ability to synthesize and analyze huge strains of, you know, American experience is so big that There's a side to her that that sometimes feels like she's holding herself above the reader and uh, and, and almost denigrating the reader. There's almost a masochism to the love of Joan Didion because, you know, there's something a little bit self-aggrandizing, perhaps, in her self-presentation.
1: I don't disagree at all, uh, Dana. And, you know, the Didion that I liked least was the uh, Hollywood Didion, the screenwriter Didion, who I just found. Easy to dislike. Um, you know, she could be an upper bourgeois bohemian name dropper, a Hollywood inside dopester, or her she was married obviously for decades to um, John Gregory Dunn, also a novelist, and her co-screenwriter. And, you know, but they both wrote fairly a lot about what it was like to collaborate and and deal with the Hollywood beast. That brought out, I think, those exactly those worst qualities that you're pointing to, slightly Empyrean above it all. But I at the end of the day, powerful as the drug is, uh, Julia, I'm gonna say that she was a pair of eyeglasses. When when her worked work really worked, you it wasn't this fake, slightly you know, overinflated visionary bullshit that a lot of us would be oracles of culture or burden the English language with, I, I thought it actually there was a total clarity to her best work. Um, the Reagan essay, The West Wing of Oz. I mean, I, as a person struggling to write a book about the 80s, I've read everything about Ronald Reagan. There's remarkably little that's good because he was so in some ways vacuous. Um, she found a way to write about him that was totally original and you really saw what the... Uh, you know. And, and by the way, also, she was a child of the Cold War. The sense of disbelief about the extent of the federal superstate and its sense of 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 you know missionary zeal abroad, you know, culminating in the disaster in Vietnam, and how much that lingered in Central America—that was a huge preoccupation of hers in the eighties um, and beyond. Um, you know that that we were still in our own kind of perverse way colonialists especially in our own sphere and also just I will say it's just something about a America, great American writer that that emanates from California and the heat and the subtropical heat of this country comfort she seemed very at home in my imagination in southern California and Florida two places that are inimical to a lot of you know so much of American writing descends from uh, puritanical America has a puritanical strain to it. She didn't have that, found that fascinating. Anyway, I could go on and on and on and on, but Julia, why don't you please take the last word?
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing I would point to if you're still hankering to read more about Joan Didion is um, Gustavo Ariano had a wonderful column for the paper about teaching her in his um, community college journalism class, and I think found a similar experience to what you described, Steve, of you know his students' who largely came from backgrounds very different than her own, still finding her voice to be the one that was most intriguing, most beguiling, most, it felt like it had its finger on something. And I I think for all that you can argue with the specificity of her view or the kind of bag of tricks that she used, like there's just undeniable power in the work. And I'm excited to dig further into the stuff I haven't read.
1: Okay, maybe what we'll try to do is post links to some of the Didion pieces that we most admire, a link to goodbye to all that, you know, the the Reagan one, the Gingrich one, on and on and on. But we'd also love to hear from our listeners, you know, what your feelings are about Didion and this immense legacy. She may have meant nothing to you, or she may have deeply offended you. We'd love to hear that too.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple. 2%
1: Okay. Well, some things are so fun that they induce me, a grammar snob, to use the words funner and funnest. Uh, I regard Dana the Movie Club as one of those. I love it when it rolls around. It's all the things I love. I actually love how much you hate top 10 lists. I love <laughs> I love the kind of fertility, you know, creative fertility and critical fertility you get out of resisting it. You always produce an interesting one and a defensible one. I love for a critic how much you hate levying critical judgments. It's just, it's just <laughs> like a Dana Stevens Palooza that I really enjoy. It's also, of course, a, t- a little annual dipstick, a little state of the art of movies and the business of movies, which every year it seems like that question gets more and more acute, Will it survive as a medium? Why isn't it as culturally central now as streaming TV? And what were the good ones? So What were the ones that blow past that stale paradigm and, and, and are just fresh and had to be told in the two-hour format and seen in a theater? Anyway, all the above. So I'm going to let you take it away. Tell me where you want to start. What struck you about this year's movie club uh, that maybe coalesced for you a set of feelings you might have been having about 2021 as a year in movies?
2: I mean, I'm very curious to hear how this movie club hit with you guys, because it felt different to me than anyone I've ever done in my however many years now, 15 years at Slate. And I think that largely is because of the timing of it, right? I mean, it's always written between... Christmas and New Year's or somewhere right there in the, at the height of the holiday week, which is part of the fun of writing it is that it's this period when, you know, the world is shut down and everything feels sort of quiet and it's sort of like the year's chaos of movies is over, right? The, the voting for awards and the making of lists and the rushing around cramming all the movies into your eyeballs and you get to actually sit down and revisit movies, right? I mean, talk about some that you didn't get the chance to talk about during the year, rewatch things and kind of chew them over in this atmosphere of, of collegiality with fellow critics. And that part of it is always true and always fun. But this year, because of both the pandemic and the particular fact that Omicron hit on the exact week and sort of created all this chaos in the exact week we were writing, made this year's movie club to me really feel like a, a port in a storm. And uh, it was really, really great to be able to be in communication with, um, with colleagues during that week and felt to me like a true exchange of, um, of, of letters among us. Also, as has been true for the past two years, movie culture is so dispersed and scattered when there aren't movie theaters or when movie theaters aren't a big part of our lives. And so that also changes, you know, the festival schedule. Are those happening? You know, the release schedule constantly changing and being held up. Um, you know, there was this bottleneck of movies in 2021 that was had been held up because of either distribution or production problems related to the pandemic. And so as a result, there was just this rush of titles to talk about this year and a very widely dispersed rush of titles where it wasn't like we had all been marching to the theater to see the same things and coming home to write about them as the movie year is usually structured. So as a result, it really felt to me like, and I used this image at one point in when one of my posts, like this cornucopia, like we were all just having titles poured on our laps and, you know, getting to, to sort through them. So I guess that's that's the sort of watchword of how it felt to me this year was profusion. And I wonder if that came across in the reading of the club as well.
0: I mean, I have a an answer to that, which is like, Like this is my first year discussing the movie club, having not podcasted for half the year. And so I have just watched many, many, many fewer movies than I typically would have. You know, usually I'd be caught up. I'd have opinions about everything. I would have already talked to you guys about a bunch of them. So for me, I think I met it the way a more casual moviegoer would meet it. And I know this is familiar, but none of the movies seemed important. Like you guys seemed engaged with them. I enjoyed reading about them but like just the feeling of the lack of centrality or urgency of film as a genre in terms of dealing with what we're dealing with. And some of this is like the lag time, obviously, you know, I mean, as I think you guys discussed with station 11, we're just barely getting to seeing filmed art that's grappling with our particular moment. But like, you know, even the conversations that you guys had about like, I may destroy you. Like, I, I don't know. Like, it's the year of the musical. Are musicals relevant? Like, you know, what's Steven Spielberg's deal? And as I'm saying this, I'm hearing myself, and of course it's not true. There are all these interesting debates about race and representation and these big Hollywood musical productions around Latinos and all of Lin-Manuel's work. Like, I, I, I don't know. I just, the the kind of floating off into spaceness of movies like the sense of like our movies becoming jazz just felt permeated (laughs) and like that's like I, i i can't tell if that's just my unpluggedness
1: or not no it's not i'm gonna come in right behind you julia you you really took the words out of my mouth this time i began feeling before i read the movie club six months ago or so i really started to feel it in my bones that 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 the loss of centrality of movies to american culture which has been coming you could argue for 50 years you could argue for 5 years you could argue for a year I, you can pick your timeline but i i feel like it's here and it's here because so much of the juice came from so much of the the electricity and the god you're just attention regardless for or against right in revulsion or fascination or envy or lust or whatever poured upon American cinema on Hollywood because Hollywood brought together, you know, industrial production, idiosyncratic artistic vision, social relevance, uh, eccentricity, stardom, uh, you know, and the conscious and unconscious desires of the culture. It, it, you know, since the great golden age of the 1930s, you know, it just it just had been A magnet for our own like id ego and super ego like kind of every part of our own personality was bound up in the fate of the movies and i was like oh no no no." it's six months ago i was like oh it's definitively over like it's just definitively over i don't think this is nostalgia on my part i don't think it's declinism it's just if you don't have the juice you don't have the juice and and a big part of it also dana i would say so your list is provocative it's wonderful you left pig off and i'll forgive you for it but but you know, what I will say is that, is that, and there'll be great movies in the same way that there's great jazz, but it just, novels on TV have supplanted it, A. And B, you know, when Hollywood, and they may have had to do it, but when Hollywood went all in on IP, on the treasure trove of Star Wars and Marvel and Harry Potter and fill in the blank, um, they, they downgraded the power of the movie star, right? The movie star is no longer quite, and acting has never been more wonderful i mean I'm floored every time I see something virtually every time I see even mediocre things in theaters or at home. Actors are wonderful; they really have never been better i mean they're they, th- th- that is an art form that's fully come into its own, but that is independent of of stardom and the old draws of stardom and somehow uh that displacement of you know uh marvel characters for the actors, at some level, the actors, the primacy of the actors playing them, it just somehow the glamour. Is that, is that the word I'm looking for? So the, when Hollywood loses its glamour, the movies no longer occupy their 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 traditional place in American life. Am I overselling this?
2: I mean, this is something that we get into in the club in the very first first post. Actually, I was writing on the morning after. Spider-Man's opening weekend, Spider-Man No Way Home, the new Marvel installment, and it had just made this absolute killing at the box office. I mean, not just for the pandemic, but, you know, in absolute terms, I think it was I'm going to get the numbers wrong, I'm sure if I say them, but I think it was $260 million. You know, it was one of the highest-grossing movies in years, pandemic or no. And so we were beginning under the shadow of of that, and and I sort of kicked off by talking about that, about, you know, what's left if this is the tent pole, you know, what else is under the tent? What's being sheltered by the tent? What's getting stuck out in the rain? outside of the tent. And I guess that's what we are writing about. I admit that I feel some deflation hearing from both of you that the thing that I've spent 12,000 words writing about with fellow critics, and, and that is my only means of making a living, no longer matters to anyone. <laughs> sorry.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah, sorry about that. And, and obviously, you guys are grappling with that in the piece and then I think as it makes sense like you then jump into the actual films because there still is so many so are so many interesting things to talk about interesting works and interesting projects but the um I don't it 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 just feel it feels more sealed off from how we are processing the world as a culture and I guess I wonder if you agree with that or would make a the quite sensible counter-argument of like, well, just give them a few years, like the amount of time it takes to make films, especially at this particular moment, is such that we had a weird experience of having a very vivid set of years that are quite specific in their cultural experience and we ended up like watching all of these, you know, ships and bottles washing up on shore to mix metaphors, like all these little dispatches from another world. Um, Do you... Do you think some of our response might have to do with the accident of like the release calendar this year versus the reality of this year?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to make big sweeping pronouncements about the future of movies at a moment when theaters are in peril for a reason that has nothing to do with movies and the same reason that all kinds of public institutions are in peril right now. Obviously, these problems preceded, and we've been talking about them in this show for years, right? The the monoculture of Marvel sort of sucking the industry dry and not creating any space for mid-sized or smaller movies. We've talked about all of that for years, and the pandemic has obviously exacerbated and put it into more relief. I do think it's kind of too early to make those pronouncements. I thought that in relation to West Side Story and all of these chin-stroking think pieces about what it means that that movie didn't do well at the box office. I mean, I think a huge part of what it means is that the demographic that would have gone to that movie, which is older people, didn't, weren't, aren't going to any place in public right now. So maybe we should hold off on some of those grand pronouncements until we're through this period. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> what's going on is is not good. There's no question that the art form that I'm writing about is one that's in a really intense period of transformation that is is not all to the good. And I guess part of what this year's movie club felt like, in a way, I mean, this harks back to Station Eleven and Shakespeare after the apocalypse or something. The, you know, just the idea that maybe we're like monks <laughs> copying out manuscripts and trying to keep some kind of culture alive. And maybe that seems really irrelevant and useless, but I'm sort of proud to be a, a scribing monk.
1: Okay. I've enjoyed it enormously, but it's my fault we've gone incredibly meta here. We're at 70,000 feet. Dana, you do produce a list. It does have utility to listeners and readers. Um, When you were making the list, were there a couple movies that you thought, listen, this I'm including it, I'm remembering now how much I loved it, how central it was to my experience of movies in 2021, and how much I don't want people to miss it for it to fall through the cracks. Do you have a couple of titles?
2: Yeah, I can name a few titles that, that, that fall into that category of things that I hope didn't pass people by. One of them is one of the first movies we talked about in 2021, back at the beginning of the year, The Disciple, that fantastic Indian film about the, the classical musician trying to, to succeed. And it's really a film about mentorship and teaching, which is something that I'm always a complete sucker for, and just a great, beautiful film that was horribly underpromoted by Netflix. I mean, you had to literally search it by title in order to find that movie. There was no promotion whatsoever. So I hope that that emerges into people's lives and that they also keep an eye out for that director. Chaitanya Tamhan is his name. And uh, his previous film, Court, which I write about a bit in Movie Club, is also fantastic. Um, Okay, as long as we're doing Under the Radar, here's another foreign film, A Hero by Asghar Farhadi, who made A Separation, a movie that I think we all loved, that we talked about a few years ago when it won an Oscar back in the year it came out, a foreign film Oscar. But this one went a little bit under the radar this year, and it's just great. It's a little bit similar to A Separation in the sense that it's this sort of social realist document that's also made with a great deal of lyricism and poetry. It's about a man in Tehran who is in debtor's prison, which is something I didn't realize existed in Iran. And this movie is also, in a sort of underhanded way, a, a critique of the legal system there, and who has two days off from from jail in which he finds this purse full of money, and it becomes a sort of moral fable about what he's going to do with this money. Incredible movie. Some of the titles that I mentioned, like, like Power of the Dog and West Side Story, are movies that we've already talked about here on the show, and people know that I love them. But here's one we haven't talked about that maybe we'll get get to, because this may be up for a foreign film Oscar. It's Almodovar's Parallel Mothers, which is just one of these late Almodovar's that's so novelistic and huge and has this enormous historic sweep. It's just fantastic. And it has Penelope Cruz, who's one of his muses, of course, in one of the best performances I've I've ever seen her in. So Almodovar's Parallel Mothers is one of them.
1: I mean, and, and Dana, it needs to be said, right, for all of the, I don't know, kind of doomsaying uh the Julia and I indulged in, it needs to be said that that film the traditionally conceived like basically a two-hour feature movie is a director's medium. So when you, as soon as you begin talking about Farhadi and Almodova two of the truly great living masters of the forum, you're like, yeah, TV can't do that. I mean the TV's I love TV right now. It's like you can do all kinds of things if you have 10, 12 hours to work with, but but you can't do that
2: right and also the visual spectacle that's that's inherent in seeing a movie in the theater we talk about dune in the movie club which as you guys know from having discussed it on our show i was not crazy about dune but dune to me unquestionably is an experience that to to get anything out of it at all you have to be in the biggest loudest movie theater mm-hmm. possible right you have to as i say in the in the movie club get Duned. you know it's an experience that happens to you and uh and i can only imagine seeing that on the small screen how how boring i would have found it given that it was already pretty dull at the movies <laughs> (laughs) But then there are movies that that blow you away in the theater, like Power of the Dog, which if I had to rank my list, which I never do, Power of the Dog might have been the number one movie. And again, that is completely because it's something that happens to you in a movie theater. And I remember the feeling of seeing it in the minute the credits started to roll, thinking, I must see that again. How can I see it again? And uh, it was in that period before a movie opens. And you know, I didn't have any way to see it again. And it was sort of like this physical longing to be back in the theater, seeing Power of the Dog, to see how it was all put together. And again, that's something that... that only movies can do. As as soon as it's something streaming where you can just go back and rewind. I mean, it's a different experience.
1: Yeah, the ravishment, nothing is like it, right? Seeing Lawrence of the Rabia on the big screen or Star Wars as a kid. All right. Well, this is this one is just calling out for people to send in what was left off of lists, what's on people's lists, uh, you know, love for the movie Pig, the masterpiece of the year.
2: Can I say one more thing about movie club too? Because we haven't really mentioned it. It's just it's such a great conversation among critics, and that's really one of my favorite things about it. It's a chance it's not reviews. It's not a bunch of people posting reviews, right? It's a chance to be playful. So there's there's a song parody in there by odie henderson the great critic who is one of the three i'm, I'm discussing movies with it's also Bill abiri allison wilmore all of them just bringing you know their sense of humor their sense of playfulness i end on a sonnet it's just it's goofy and fun and i really hope that people will will just read their way through it at their own leisure
1: yeah it's a wonderful conversation and uh, people should check it out all right now is the moment in our uh, podcast when we endorse day nah what do you
2: have, Steve? I have the most amazing endorsement this week. I really hope people will follow up on it. Um, it's it's something that's been haunting me all week long. This is the work of an animator, a Swedish stop motion animator named Nikki Lindroth von Bar, who my family discovered on the Criterion Channel this week uh, because four of her animation shorts, which are ranging from five minutes to 20 or so minutes long, are are bundled together on Criterion right now. You can also watch one of them, I think maybe the best one, which is called The Burden on Amazon Prime, if you don't have the Criterion channel. But make a note of this animator. If you're interested in stop motion, uh, in sort of animation in general, and just in beautiful, melancholy, completely idiosyncratic filmmaking, Nikki Lindroth von Barr is very worth checking out. I don't know anything about her other than these four shorts that are currently on Criterion. But how can I describe her style? The 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 figures that she animates look maybe a little bit like the figures from Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is possibly my favorite Wes Anderson movie. I love that that look, that kind of toy-like dollhouse look of the creatures. But it's a much, much different world, a very, um, very Nordic, Steve, which just very up your alley, <laughs> but a, a very sort of lonely, melancholy world. There's a sort of a critique of capitalism in the way that she shows these these bleak, urban, modern spaces, but it's all very subtle and understated. And funny, incredibly, incredibly funny. I just wish I could describe what it's like to see, to come across, like, little fish, sardines in bathrobes, sticking their heads out of hotel rooms to (laughs) sing in unison about their loneliness. It's just so beautiful and and touching. And these songs in Swedish have gotten stuck in our heads so that my family and I are, are going around all week singing little bits of Swedish fish songs to each other because they're so haunting.
0: Oh, my God. This is an all-time Dana endorsement. It
1: really is.
0: Sardines and bathrobes.
1: Every word of it is made up, but go go ahead.
2: Oh, yes. You have no idea. No, it is very me. But it's also... My kid also completely fell for the sardines and bathrobes and the you know foxes standing in the midst of big box stores singing about their sorrows. And they're just strange, lonely, little beautiful worlds that you can't believe got made, like the level of detail. I don't know what... Scale these miniatures are built at. They must be fairly big miniatures in order to have the level of detail she has. But you know, every product on the shelf has its own little label. It just feels like you're inside this sort of haunted dollhouse, and it's it's really incredible. So I'm going to explore more. But for now, you can watch four Nikki Lindroth von Barr films on the Criterion Channel. I think until the end of this month.
1: We got some really good Dana Stevens. This was <laughs> like today was just like yeah. It's like dry January is going to be much easier after that. Yeah. <laughs> On the Dana pipe, on the Dana hookah.
2: Was <laughs> it <What>, sardines <laughs> and
0: bathrobes that did it for you?
1: Oh, man. My head's swimming with them. Julia, what do you have?
0: I have a recipe today. I'm like brimming with things to endorse, but I'll dill them out one week at a time. Uh, but we canceled our travel plans thanks to Omicron. And so we hunkered at home and had a really cozy Cali Christmas, which, like, I. Took a photo of my children eating snow cones in the Christmas tree, you know, the discount last day Christmas tree lot after we canceled our flight with like palm trees behind them. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'm really in Californian now. Um, but we did a ton of baking projects, one of which was to make rainbow cookies. You know, those little cookies that you can get in an Italian pastry shop? Mm-hmm, yeah, They're like the little stack stacked cakes. It's like a little little Italian flag with chocolate on top and below and some jam between the layers. And it's one of those cookies that's actually a cake, like black and white cookies, where you make three thin little sponges and then you glue them together with um, orange marmalade and then you put chocolate on top and bottom. But anyway, it was like one of those baking projects that's like an elaborate construction process. And I don't even really like rainbow cookies that much, I thought, uh, but it was the recipe my son picked out, so we did it. And it was like one of those really fun magic trick baking projects that seems like it shouldn't work and then you end up producing something that seems like it could sit in a little um pasticceria and then I also like got Stockholm syndrome for the rainbow cookies and decided that in fact I love them and they they're one of those things that like the staler they get the more the jam permeates the almond layers. And, you know, like the, on the, on the seventh day as they were like just beginning to get too dry to be tolerable, they still felt better than on day one. I don't know. All I did was make and then eat like a thousand rainbow cookies. Um, the recipe we used is the recipe of the, uh, from Terezi, the restaurant that I'm sure I've endorsed. That's one, you know, the, guys who run Teresi have gone on to launch a ton of restaurants all over the world, including Carbone and others, but they got their start at Teresi and they used to always serve little morsels of rainbow cookies with the check. They published the recipe in a few places. If you make it in New York Magazine, you will make it in two full-size sheet pans and have like 200 rainbow cookies, which is too much. We found that Bon Appetit had also adapted the recipe slightly and uh, lets you make it in a quarter sheet pans and you only make about 100 rainbow cookies. And that is what I would recommend because it was quite a lot of rainbow cookies. So we'll we'll share the link. But rainbow cookies, they seem like the kind of thing you couldn't make, but you can make them and it's super fun. Oh my
1: God, that is two great endorsements. Okay, let me see if I can if I can rise to the occasion. Um, I have two things very quickly. The first is that, you know, I'm making this monster playlist for old friends of mine on um, on Spotify. I think it's available publicly. I'll post a link to it. But it's up to about, a, I think it's not quite 900 songs. I think I'll probably get it to about a thousand and then knock off. But, you know, the criterion is, my friend wanted music that was relatively mellow. Her nerves were jarred as all of ours have been. And, uh, but anyway, and, I, you know, the other criterion was like, I kind of wanted to be stuff that wasn't, you know, either you'd sort of forgotten the song or you didn't know the song or over-familiarity was definitely a, a principle of exclusion in this. Anyway, you know, I, I kind of, the other day I was thinking about a song came into my head, living it up, living it up. And I was like, what is that? That haunting melody I used to, I remembered, you know, Ricky Lee Jones back in the seventies broke really big. I mean, I don't know if people really remember this about her, but she had a huge hit with Chucky's in Love and was a gigantic success. She had an iconic performance on Saturday Night Live, it went quite well. She was on the cover of Rolling Stone. She really broke huge. And I think she produced what maybe at the time was regarded as an ambitious but sophomore slump album called Pirates. Well, Pirates is one of my favorite records of all time. And in 1981 when it came out, I thought this is a You people are crazy. This is a stone masterpiece. What are you saying? It's beautiful. And she, you know, Chucky's in love. She plays, I think it's an acoustic guitar with a very jazzy style. She's got a jazz, great kind of wonderfully sleepy, you know, kind of beatnik jazz vocal style can play guitar quite well. But she's, um, I think, playing piano. Her first album was a real guitar album. Pirates is different. It's a real piano album. You can really tell it was written on piano. She's playing piano on it beautifully. It is a tremendous record. I pound the table on it. That melody that came back to me hauntingly the other days from the second song on it, Living It Up, which is the one thing that approached being a hit on the record It is such a great song. How do people not curl up with this song in bed and demand to be buried with it when their time is up? I mean, it is... Please listen to this song. I love this song. I, I love her work from every era that she's she's put out. You know, music. She's still going. She's still wonderful. Um, but but you know, maybe start there if you haven't heard her in a while, or go back to the album Pirates. It's great. And then, with equal enthusiasm, I've only to, I'm embarrassed to say just discovered the art criticism of Susan Tallman, T A L L M A N, who writes very uh, often uh, for the New York Review of Books via her. I think, tour de force essay on Jasper Johns, the occasion of which is the big exhibit in New York, up in New York right now. It's just got zest, seriousness, playfulness, uh, inte- lively, just a lively critical intelligence of the highest order. Brought me back, back to a Philip Guston piece that she wrote a while ago that I'd forgotten was by her. It's just a marvelous piece of writing. You know, um, I, I, I I love painting. I love modern painting. I love the story of modern painting. I try as a critic to engage with it, but I'm not really an art critic, and I'm just always way in way over my head she's writing what i wish i could so badly so could write you know just that that's that just electric engagement with what's on the on the canvas plus an ability to tell the story um that lies behind the artist and and what they produced visually so uh susan tallman will post links to it start with the jasper johns one it's obviously relevant now but then start clicking through you won't be disappointed there we go i'm out of breath Dana, thank you so much.
2: Thanks, Steve. It was a pleasure.
1: Yeah, real pleasure. Julia, this was a good one. Thanks, guys. You will find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page. That's slate.com slash culture fest. And you can email us as always. And we we demand it. In fact, we love it at uh, culture fest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the wonderful composer, Nick Brattel. Our producer this week is Asha Saluja, and our production assistant is Nira Goff with something of an assist from June Thomas, as I understand it. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you soon.